When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listeners are advised, this episode contains discussion of attempted suicide. The Book of Constellations Written, produced, and performed by W. Keith Timms Chapter 1, Verse 1 Sorry about that. Uh, Y'all are gonna have to bear with me sometimes. So, uh, Rael, when people find out that I knew him, a lot of them want to know what he really looked like. That is, of course, they want to know if he was blue. Was he really, you know? (laughs) So let me set the record straight. There was always something a little off about him. Like, he never seemed that comfortable in his own body. Like, it was something he was wearing that didn't fit him well, but he wasn't all that worried about it. In fact, he spent so much time in his head that it's a wonder he paid attention to his body at all. I hardly ever saw him eat or drink, or sleep, for that matter. He would bathe, but really only when he saw other people doing it like it was a reminder to him of something that he should do. His body was an afterthought, I guess, which makes sense considering, uh, well, that's the debate, right? But no, his appearance, um, thin, scrawny even. He had that long black hair that crowded his neck and fell across his face. He almost always wore those uh, cheap, round sunglasses, the the kind with the side shields. So you never really got to see his eyes. Hell, I never got to see him until the end. But his face, I don't know. um, He kind of looked like a mix of all kinds of people. A little of everyone, I guess. But okay, his skin. During the day, if anything, he looked kind of gray. Gray tan, I guess. You know, like 
sort of ashen. Not so much you'd stare, but it was noticeable. Being as thin as he was, it made him look kind of sick, added to that feeling that his body wasn't right. But the whole blue thing started after people started seeing him at night. Now, we traveled a lot at night, especially at first, and there were times under a clear sky with the stars shining and the moonlight painting everything around in degrees of shadow when Rael would stare up at the firmament and, yes, his skin would seem to glow a soft blue. So I guess after a fashion he was. But look, he wasn't a smurf or anything. He wasn't like that girl turning into a blueberry in that chocolate factory book. A lot of people have talked about this rare blood condition that makes people blue. You might have heard of it, or, or, or the blue people of Kentucky. Some people have said that he might have had a version of that. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. He was a quiet man, barely tethered to this world, who spoke one word for every thousand that he thought. And sometimes in the darkest and loneliest hours of night, he seemed to be made of starlight. So people often ask me about what he looked like, or they ask, um, what kind of person was he? To which I have to say, well, look at what he did. And that'll tell you. They ask about sensational stuff, too, which I'm not even going to dignify. What they don't ask me about often is how he brought me back from the dead. I have bone cancer. At this point, there's not much to be done about it. It's in my legs and hips and starting to spread into my spine. A few years ago, I might have been able to slow it down, but uh, I couldn't afford the treatment. Got no insurance, you know. Didn't go to the doctor like I should have, but doctors cost money. Started getting aches and pains in my legs, but I figured it's just part of getting old, you know. I'm in my 60s now, and that's the deal. Stuff starts to break down and hurt. Not as spry as I was in my 20s. I worked on a fishing boat back then. Now that was hard work. Spend all day getting tossed around on the water. The sun and spray hitting your chap skin. Every day came home exhausted, stinking of brine and fish guts. Some days I heard something awful. But that kind of pain is the kind that tells you you're alive. That you're a thing with a purpose, working your will on the world. But this cancer... Uh... You know dandelions? When they turn into little spiky puff balls, the, the kids fight over to blow out into a cloud of tiny parachutes. Saw an x-ray of my hip joint, and jagged spikes of bone jutting out from it reminded me of a dandelion. Except these needles won't blow away. This kind of pain is cold and secret. It comes to take away, bit by bit, little pieces of you. Anyway, the pain started getting worse. Some days walking was impossible. It hurt so much. I had to quit my part-time job at the warehouse. By the time they figured out what it was, it was $100,000 in radiation, chemo, surgery. And even then, they weren't sure I'd ever get better. And it's like no one really cares. I mean, 
The doctors and nurses and whatever, they were kind and sympathetic, but they don't matter like $100,000 matters. And I got pretty low. I've been alone a long while now. Never really could make a relationship stick. Being in love means being flexible, and I guess I just got too set in my ways. <laughs> it's not like I'm much of a prize, either. Never went to college, never had a really good career. I had cancer on that, and, well, I didn't think being alone was likely to change. I spent half my day's bedridden with pain, and the other half without anything to do. And all of it just thinking about ending it all. So one day, I stopped thinking about it, and did it. To be fair, I had to build up my courage. The thought of what I wanted to do terrified me. It's a hard thing to stare down the barrel of a gun, but I was also staring down the ragged remains of an agony-filled life. Not a life at all, really, just pain and worry and solitude. That's no way to live, or so I thought. And... I want to interrupt here for just a second to say that if you're thinking about doing these same things to yourself, I understand. I know how the fear creeps in from all directions, as it seems every choice is frightening and awful. But before you do anything about it, let me finish my story. Please. I have this old beat-up RV that I live in. Still runs pretty much all I got left. A guy I know from the warehouse, he knows I got problems. He has some property out on the edge of the county. There's a camper hook up on it, water, power, septic. He lets me stay rent free. <laughs> Says I'm doing him a favor by keeping an eye on the place, but I know he's just being kind. Anyway, one day the pain hits me hard. I can't get out of bed for three days. I thought that might be the end, but I survived, and on the other side of it, dehydrated, weak, and scared. I decided that the fear of going through that again was stronger than the fear of ending it. The property has this old barn at the edge of a field near the tree line. It's lost a few boards, the dark red paint is chipped and peeling, but it's still sturdy enough to stand. I decided to do it in there. I figured I could leave the camper for my buddy from work. I mean, it's not worth much, but I didn't want to mess it up. And I guess I felt like the barn would give me some privacy. Didn't leave a note. Didn't seem much of a point. I have a shotgun that I keep in case of aggravated wildlife or wanderers with bad intentions. double barrel job. Haven't had to use it, thank God. But I loaded it up and carried it with me out into the night. Outside, it's clear and cool. The thin crescent moon is below the trees, so you could see the stars clearly. The crickets and the frogs are all singing around me as I limp slowly through the tall grass. The barn is dark and shadowy, but the stars light up its roof with its missing shingles. Gone about halfway across the field when these tiny streaks of light start flying across the heavens. It's a meteor shower. It's come out of nowhere. I stop and watch. It's like fireflies with jet engines half a world away. Luminous trails that scratch up the sky and then vanish as if they never were. 
and after a couple of minutes, they're gone. I take it as some sort of sign that the universe wants to give me one last show before I say goodbye, but you know how wishful thinking goes. The barn is dark, and it stood empty long enough that there are no animal smells left, but the scent of damp earth and old hay linger. I can just make out the sky through the missing shingles and boards. The inside is empty, just some stalls, a decaying ladder to the loft, and a few discarded beer cans, cigarette butts, and other signs that teens have been here doing teen things. I find a clear spot at the far end and settle on the dirt. I'm not going to go into detail about that moment. It's hard for me to even think about now. But there's two things you need to know. One, I have everything ready like it should be. And two, I am terrified right up until the moment I pull the triggers. The hammers fall with a double click. But that's it. No explosion of the shells. No kick of the gun. No smoke. No pain. Except the pain in my legs that's always there. Neither of the barrels fire. And I sit there awkwardly on the ground, having just tried to do the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life, and failed. This misery just crashes over me. But there's this relief of the tension, too. So a trembling laugh bubbles up from inside me, hollow and awful. Which is when I see him. He is silhouetted in the open barn door, his shadow cast by starlight. Tall and thin, like I said. His hair hangs in his face, partly over those round sunglasses. He's wearing one of those thin wool ponchos with the V-neck, tan with brown stripes, which hangs over his body like a robe. His gangly bare arms poke out from under the folds of the fabric. His left wrist is decorated with what I would later learn were hospital bands. Dark blue scrubs on his legs, like nurses wear. He's barefoot. He stares right at me, head slightly tilted, as if he's trying to make sense of what he was looking at. I hadn't seen or heard him enter, and I have no idea how long he'd been there. I suddenly feel exposed, embarrassed, having been caught this way. I'm having the worst day of my life and someone else has to see it. So I say to him, Uh, hey, buddy, how about a little privacy here? <laughs> like I'm on the toilet. I feel even more foolish. But he doesn't move at all. Just keeps staring at me for what seems like forever. Until he says... Why do you wish to end your life? I'm not prepared for that question, so I say, Look, it's uh, it's complicated and personal. Can you just leave me alone, please? He takes five slow, long steps into the barn, his toes sinking into the dirt until he is close, watching me through those dark lenses. Why? He repeats. I can't tell you how strange it feels, me sitting on the ground holding my impotent shotgun, him just standing over me, nearly completely invisible in the dark of the barn. He is without alarm, or sadness, or embarrassment on my behalf. Maybe that's what makes me answer him honestly. 
because I have cancer and there's nothing but pain left for me. He crouches down to my eye level, the starlight through the holes in the roof reflecting off his lenses. That's why you have to live. Because you understand the pain. All the tension and adrenaline from my failed attempt is gone now. I start to shiver. Tears form in my eyes and ashamed I look down at the ground. I'm not strong enough, he says. No one is alone. What is your name? Simon, I said. What's yours? Rahel. He's quiet a moment more, and then he stands up. I am heading west to fight the darkness. Come with me. I actually laugh a little around my tears at how absurd that sounds. I say, can we at least get coffee first? All right, he says. And he walks out of the barn. You know, I still don't really know why I followed. I knew at that moment, though, that I wasn't going to uh, go west and fight the darkness with this stranger. And I do mean strange. His appearance in the barn that night unbalanced me. I'd already decided my life was over, and if the gun hadn't failed, it would be. And now, here was this man... Well... I thought he was crazy. But I followed him out of the barn, so maybe I'm the crazy one. He's halfway across the field, heading for my RV. Hey, I call to him. Where are you going? He doesn't look back, just keeps walking. It was then that I really got my first glimpse of the blue starlight in his skin. My breath catches in my throat. I must be seeing things, but I also know I'm not. Coffee, he says to me, as if the answer was self-evident. I don't know what to say, until eventually I get out. I'm out of coffee. That makes him stop, and he turns back to me. The two of us stare at each other, there in the middle of the damn field. Fine, I say, after a little while. We'll go get coffee. We drive into town through the pine-shrouded back roads in my RV to the only place nearby that serves coffee at 3 a.m., Lulu's Diner. The overnight shift waitress and cook were the only others in the place. Watching the TV hanging from the ceiling turned to one of those news and talk stations. They'd seen me before, but Rael draws a few stares, especially with his dirty, bare feet. But the waitress doesn't say anything as she puts down the two mugs of coffee in front of us. I start making mine up just like I like. Lots of cream and sugar. Rael watches me from behind those side shielded shades. What are you doing? He asks. Fixing my coffee, I say. He's silent and motionless at that, so I ask. How do you take yours? Take, he says. Yeah, how do you drink it? Black? Sugar? He looks at the mug and says, I've never had it. Well, that's about the saddest thing I've heard all day. Then he asks, pointing at the sugar packets, Why are you adding these things to it? Well, uh, personally, I think it's too bitter to drink without them. He says, 
You drink something so unpleasant that you have to add other things to it to make it taste good? Yeah, I say. I suppose. I mean, it's kind of like life, isn't it? It's a bitter drink, but you add the sugar and cream when you can. Coffee is a metaphor. Coffee is life, he says. I guess so, I say. And you like coffee. I know what he's doing. So I say, yeah, well, sometimes there ain't enough cream and sugar in the world to make it better. He lifts his hands from his lap, and that's when I notice the three plastic hospital bracelets around his wrist. Looks like they've been through a lot. The letters are smudged, and I can't make out anything from across the booth. He wraps both hands around the mug and takes a sip. His lips purse in a small grimace, and uh, I have to grin a little. (laughs) You want some sugar, maybe? No, thank you, he says. I will learn to take it as it comes. He sets down the mug. Simon, come west with me. I rub my temples as I stare at him. Look, I, um, I know what you saw back there in the barn might have been, I don't know, strange or upsetting or something, but you don't understand what I'm living with. I'm sorry for what you walked in on, but I'm not going to be going anywhere. I can't. His hands rest lightly on the tabletop as he watches me. You will try to end your life again, he says. Yeah, I say, looking down at my own mug of coffee. The dull ache in my legs and hips is a little easier for the moment, but it's a reminder of what will come. Rail says, what will convince you to come with me? I smirk at him then. Well, can you cure cancer? And then he looks out of the plate glass window of the diner, up at the night sky. Not yet, he says. Just like that. Not yet. Damn it if part of me doesn't believe him. That's how desperate I am. Look, Rael, I say. You look like you could use some help. I I don't know what you're on the run from, so maybe I can give you a lift to a bus station, even buy you a ticket somewhere, but... He cuts me off, turning back to me. Why are you sick? I told you, because I have cancer. Yes, but there are treatments. Surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy. He knows about cancer treatments all of a sudden, but he's never had coffee. Well, I couldn't afford all that when there was a chance they would do any good. He says, the caretakers, they will not heal you without money. That's the way the world works, isn't it? I think most of the doctors and nurses and such want to make people better, but everything is so expensive at the hospitals. And the health insurance can help, but you got to have a full-time job to get anything decent. If I had bought insurance myself, it wouldn't have left me anything to live on. You get bad sick, you go into debt for the rest of your life, unless you're rich. He thinks about this for a long moment, and then he says, Why do your leaders hate sick people? I don't have an answer for him, really, so I shrug my shoulders. He then folds his hands into his lap, nodding to himself. It is the darkness. The darkness, I say. You keep mentioning it. That uh, sounds kind of, um, you know, dramatic. He doesn't react, really. If anything, he seems tired looking at that coffee cup in front of him without really seeing it. Finally, with a small, resigned sigh, he says quite softly, The darkness has taken so many. I cannot let it take root here.
He lifts his chin then to look at me. If the darkness is here, then... He trails off, and his gaze lifts past me, over my shoulder. I can see the image of the TV screen reflected in his sunglasses. He watches the TV for a moment and then points. There. You see? It is there. I turn around to look at the screen. It's one of those talk show hosts that pretends like he's a newscaster, frothing at the mouth about whatever the latest thing we should be afraid of is. I've seen him before. His name is Pilot Quaid. He's got the governor of the state on as his guest, who is looking troubled and grim, nodding his head. The audio is low, but they're talking about illegal aliens, something about taking jobs and taking handouts. It never made much sense to me. They can't be taking all these jobs and be lazy at the same time, can they? Personally, I work with a lot of people from other countries at the warehouse. Most are good folks just struggling to get by, like me. Anyway, while I'm watching, Rail gets to his feet and starts walking across the diner, his gaze transfixed on the television. There, he says, lifting his hand to point at the screen, the hospital band sliding along his wrist. The TV shows a close-up of the governor's face as he says something about protecting our borders. It's all stuff I've seen before. Big show of being tough, which is easier than having real ideas. There, Rail says, look in his eyes. You can see the darkness is in him, and it will spread from him until it claims everyone it can reach. At this point, the waitress is slowly backing away from the TV, and the cook is making sure he can get to the baseball bat he's got stashed under the counter. I limp over and gently put my hands on Rail's arms and try to look reassuring to the two of them. Uh, Don't mind him. He gets all riled up about politics. I sit him back down in the booth and wince as there's some pain in my hip. Not sure how much of this I can stand, but I want to get Rail at least on his way before I, uh... Well, I guess at that point, I'm still figuring on trying again. But for now, he's just sitting there, hands in his lap, watching me. Uh, Listen, Rail, you, um... You're kind of acting like a lunatic... His expression doesn't change, so I ask him, Are you a lunatic? You're asking me if I am mentally ill. Who gets to say that except other people? Some people would say attempting suicide is a sign of mental illness. I frown at him. That's different. Everyone is different, he says. So I suppose you will have to be the one to decide if I am mentally ill or not. Come with me, and you can judge for yourself. I take a long drink of my coffee. It's still warm enough to be pleasant, and I can taste some of the undissolved grains of sugar on my tongue, covering the bitterness, but not making it go away. I can't. The pain is too much. I'm doing okay for now, but it won't be long until I can't even walk. Then, I will carry you, he says. It's surprisingly touching. I can tell he means it. Never mind a scrawny kid like him probably couldn't drag an old guy like me around. Rael, it's just not possible. I I can't just leave to go tilting at windmills with some escaped mental patient. He angles his head slightly, 
his stringy bangs fallen across his face. Why not? I don't think you had any plans after tonight, did you? I wrapped my fist on the table in frustration. Why? Why me? He leans toward me, as if meeting my eyes with his, though all I can see is my own dim reflection in his sunglasses. Because you are a victim of the darkness. Because the pain you live with is like the pain millions live with. When despair falls on the world, cold and squeezing, people do not know what they need. They just want the fear to end. They think they want someone who is better than them, stronger and richer, with the keys to power and a will unfettered by remorse to carry them out of the despair. But what they need is someone just like them, to stand beside them, to walk with them, to add his voice to theirs. And that is why you must not yet give up your life, Simon. What do you say to that? I don't think anyone had ever talked to me that way. To see something in me that I can't see myself. I am surrounded by fear. Fear of this cancer. Fear of what it's doing to me. Fear of dying on its terms. Fear of dying on my own. It was all that I could think of. All that I could see. Until this man dropped out of the sky. And asked me to go with him. And listen, please, I know there are people who face the kind of pain and misery that I do. And that maybe they're wrestling with the same choice that I was. And I'm not saying you should or you shouldn't. How you end your life is a question for yourself, your doctors, your family, your God, and the courts. And I would find out later that Rael has strong personal reasons for believing like he does. But all I can say is that for me, at that moment, I wanted to go with him. After all, he had starlight in his skin. And what are the chances that both shotgun shells would be duds? I'm about to tell him this. When headlights cut across the diner's parking lot, a car is pulling in, its tires crushing the gravel and grit. It's one of those featureless dark gray sedans that makes you think government when you see it. Well, no, there is one feature. There is an expensive-looking antenna array on the roof. The car stops, partway in, at an odd angle, blocking the exit to the main road. Maybe it was the night, but I couldn't see anything through its windows. Just a hungry black that seems to suck up whatever light happens to fall its way. And it just sits there, idling, for too long. I hear the cook mutter, what the hell, as he stares out of the window. Rael isn't even looking, though. He speaks to me very quietly and urgently. Agents of the darkness. I cannot be found by them, Simon. Will you help me? Well, now what am I going to do? The Book of Constellations is written, produced, and performed by W. Keith Timms. 
Music for this episode included Lake Monroe by Rest You Sleeping Giant and Blues Driver by Roscoe. Links to the artists can be found at our webpage, bookofconstellations.com, and you should check out their music on Bandcamp. Additional music came from John Bartman and Free Sound Collective. The theme song is Cycles by Pictures of the Floating World. A great way to support this program is to tell everyone you know about it. And visit bookofconstellations.com. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, help is available. In the United States, call 1-800-273-8255 and speak to someone today. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.